Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I will be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Youth and Earth. Youth and Earth are a supplement company designed to help us all feel younger for longer. Their product addresses the causes of aging at a cellular level and help us to maintain and sustain a fit and active lifestyle. Their NMN delayed release capsules are one of the staples of my anti-aging, much needed arsenal. I really love them. They're entirely natural, they boost my energy levels and work to promote cell vitality throughout my body. I feel amazing with them. So if you're like me and looking to slow down the aging process, then I encourage you all to take advantage of a very generous 25% off when using the code Julia25 on your first order. Head to www.youthandearth.com now and give your body every opportunity to feel more youthful. I'll just say it again, www.youthandearth.com. Hello, Andrew. I am delighted to welcome you on to our podcast. You are a marital therapist and an author of 20 books and a podcaster. And you've been doing this for 35 years, which is actually even a few years longer than me. So we've both been in the same trade for a, for a long old time. And our paths have crossed on a couple of occasions as well, haven't they? They really have. It was so interesting. You were trained with Relate and... I applied to be a Relate therapist and was turned down by Relate 34 years ago. And last night I went to an event uh, where I was talking about my book and someone came up to me and he said, I've got a story I want to tell you. And I thought, oh gosh, um, what could that be? Anyhow, he said to me, I used to be chairman of Relate and... Diana, Princess of Wales, who was my friend, I told her I'd failed, that I hadn't been accepted. And without me knowing, she had asked them why it was. And I was never told the reason. I, maybe she was told the reason, I don't know. But it's so funny how I was then talking to you today about all of those things that happened decades ago. Anyway, so my question is, tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome. Well, I think the the challenge that I'm facing at the moment is the death of my father. We're just about to come up to the first anniversary of that. And as you probably know, that the first anniversary does bring up lots of uh, strong feelings. My father was 91 when he died and had lived a, a long and fruitful life. And he had 
grandchildren and uh, four great grandchildren and had lived a full life, but it doesn't stop it from hurting a huge amount. Yeah. So interesting, isn't it? We have this idea that with time, the sort of loss fades and maybe the relationship with the person that died changes, but it still really has. And so, I mean, what was your relationship like with your father? Well, my relationship changed a lot after my mother died, probably about five and a half years before my father. She had been very much the centre of the family and sort of everything had to go through her. So I don't think he and I had a serious conversation where she wasn't in the room in our whole lives. My goodness. So she was really his gatekeeper. (laughs) So we had a much stronger relationship after she died because it wasn't being mediated. But um, he was a very different man from me. I'm a talker. He was very silent. He was a sportsman. You know, I have played sports, but, you know, I'm not a sportsman. I'm a, for want of a better word, an artist. So very different men from very different generations. And yet... And then feel the emotions coming up that um, I lived under his protection. That's the sort of thing I never realised all of these years. Not just the sort of the bank of mum and dad that you could always go to, but the sort of sense of him as the head of the family and the sort of sheltering force. And I'd never really quite realised deep down in my bones how powerful that is and how great the loss is. Well, it's so interesting that not knowing in one's bones until someone has died how that shelter of having a a father that is alive. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but... I'm 63. 63, the same age as me. You say you were 62 when he died. And the thought in the world would be that, you know, you're 62, you've lived your life, your dad dies, that's normal, and it's what you expect. But there's this sense of exposure that you haven't got him protecting you. And it also meant the loss of the family home. You know, we'd moved into it when I was six years old and, you know, we finally finished packing it up when I was 63 years old. And this, that sense of there was always somewhere you could go and you'd never be turned away that was home is incredibly powerful. Now, if I stayed with him for more than about two or three days, you know, my teeth were on edge because that's just the nature of being a child in your father's home. But there was this sense that there was somewhere to go that was your home. And, you know, the the thought of a home and the symbol of a home is incredibly powerful in our culture. And it's not just powerful in our culture, it's powerful in our neurobiology, isn't it? Having a safe place that you call home where you have your sense of your roots, where you have the memories of going home every day. And we have a part of our brain that is particularly wired for place. And so that first place with all the sights, signs and smells would bring up in you that sense, I guess, of lots of different things, safety, but belonging. And when we feel safe, we can manage all sorts of difficulty. And when we get in a heightened state, we're much less able to. So you feel much more robust when you have the safety of your early home. 
And I think another loss is the link to my homeland, because um, although I sound possibly the most English person you've ever interviewed, I now live in Germany. I live in Berlin. So my relationship with my homeland has sort of changed. Whereas when my father was still alive, I was going back every month. There was a strong thread of continuity that I had skin in the game of the United Kingdom, whereas now I'm sort of watching from a distance. My relationship with my homeland has changed as well. So that's another element to it. And that's so interesting, isn't it? There are so many multiple losses. There's the presence and relationship with your dad that clearly grew much stronger and more loving and was more of a full relationship once your mum died. But also his death has brought the loss of your home, but also your homeland, and that you don't have the reason. Of course, you could choose to go home, but I guess not going home to see your father is emotionally a different experience and you don't have the monthly structure of it, which is also stabilising. So it sounds like you feel quite destabilised, that that's part of what is so painful for you is, I guess, refinding who you are now without those roots of your dad or with those roots, but they are not so present. And I guess you have to reform new roots for yourself. Is that the thing? Yes. And there's another layer to it as well, which is that um, in short succession after my father died, um, one of my best friends um, died as well. She had cancer and although it was expected, there was another loss there. And then my uncle died, who was my mother's twin brother. So I sort of felt, you know, I can cope with a bit of loss, but you know, then comes another loss and more loss too, you know, that people say losses happen in threes. Yeah. And I think that they say that for a reason. So I've sort of had loss for breakfast, lunch and tea. Oh, Andrew, that sounds so painful. And, you know, a new loss will always bring back a previous loss. So it feels overwhelming. So how... Has that manifested in you? Has it meant that you can't concentrate, you don't sleep, you're moodier? How's that internal destabilisation and loss shown externally? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think that because I'm a therapist, I sort of see it welling up and I immediately start to deal with it. So I think it manifests in feelings of grief, I think would probably be the, the best thing to say. What does dealing with it look like? Well, it's almost like a full-time job, to be perfectly honest. Um, I write. Yeah. I was in the process of uh, writing a book of sort of about lessons along the spiritual path. So, you know, I've probably written 30,000, 40,000 words on the topic. On my podcast, which is called The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall, one of the th topics to have a meaningful life you have to engage with is death. Yeah. And so I have to say, I have filled my podcast with lots of people talking about death. So, you know, I read about it. I talk about it. You know, you and I, when you appeared on my podcast, we talked about uh, death mm. and the impact of previous generations. And I'm in analysis as, as well. So I'm about two years into analysis. So I take all my dreams there as well. So for people listening who may not know that much about analysis... It sounds like part of what you do is understanding so that you have knowledge and you can 
support yourself with the feelings that you have with your thinking. But I guess the analysis is where you process it. And so do you want to explain to people listening what analysis is or what it is for you? Okay, so analysis is all about the unconscious rather than the conscious. So, you know, the conscious stuff is, you know, I'm aware that uh, I've lost my father and it's painful. Mm. But the unconscious material will come up that's sort of buried will possibly be material that you haven't actually dealt with that is going to sort of come up. How do you know about the stuff that is unconscious? Well, there are various ways of doing it. There's acts of active imagination. And um, I'll tell you about some something along those kind of lines that your dreams every night bring up lots of symbols and material. There's synchronicity. There's various different ways of actually finding material. So you'll just be reading something in a book and the book will be about something entirely different. And then suddenly out of it will pop something that feels weightier. Mm. And you sort of take that material with you. I mean, I've started writing poems. I sometimes take my poems to my therapist and we look at some of the symbols that have come up in that. And you get something very different. Yeah. I mean, that is a lot of what we do as therapists, isn't it, is that we can inhabit a role that is necessary for our clients while they're processing whatever it is that's brought them to us. And I think what I'm understanding about analysis from you, because I imagine you've had a huge amount of therapy, is you're going more to the spiritual, less cognitive parts of yourself to expand yourself, which is kind of reaching bits that consciousness can't reach. Yeah, it is a full experience. And what I sort of never realised is that therapy as a client is about being seen and actually having your feelings taken seriously. And that's sort of so obvious to us that we don't sort of see that. But having come from a family where feelings were best not talked about, that, you know, least said soonest mended, to actually be seen and heard is incredibly important for me. And that sounds that that is really powerful, given that as much as you loved your dad and grew to love him, he probably still couldn't hear your feelings so that you can do some of the work that you couldn't do with him when he was alive with the therapist now. Yes. I mean, in all the time we were together, I probably had two or three deep conversations with him. Um, and that is because I'm a very patient man. You really are. I can sit there and I wait until the moment comes. So, you know, amongst all the instructions for the nine millionth time about how to switch on the alarm at night when you go to bed, occasionally comes some very powerful, deep moments. So would you encourage people listening to be patient? If they're thinking about their parents and wanting to have significant conversations before they die, before it's too late, what would your advice be? One would be to be brave. You have to ask the questions, but don't expect to have the answers. So, you know, I asked my father, was he afraid of dying? And he said he'd never thought about it. And then he asked me, had I thought about dying? And I said, well, probably about three times a week. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was just an example of just how different we were. 
but I started telling him that I loved him. Now, he was never able to actually tell me that in return. He would sometimes say ditto. And it sounds weird, but actually telling my father I loved him, you know, my heart was in my mouth. You know, I rationally knew that the world wasn't going to end, but it felt very powerful uh, and very dangerous to say that. And took a lot of courage to break through the family culture of not only do we not talk about difficult feelings, but we don't talk about love. No, not at all. My mother never said, I love you to me. My father did. Did he? But my mother would say, we love you. And, you know, I said to her, that's lovely, but it feels less powerful than saying, I love you. Um, And my father at that point, for the once in his life, was able to say it, but my mother couldn't. I feel so moved that he did say it. So you have that in your memory, your dad saying, I love you. Yeah, and he also apologised to me, which was um, quite extraordinary, that um, um, neither of my parents came to my partner's funeral. Uh, My partner died when I was in my late 30s, so over 30 years ago. And my father said to me also after my mother died, we didn't really understand how painful losing somebody was. Because, you know, I mean, obviously he'd lost his parents, but um, that didn't register to him. It was losing my mother, who was sort of the centre of his life. He realised just how difficult it was losing a partner. And, you know, he apologised, which was the most extraordinary thing. But I never asked for anything. I just sort of went into that space and saw what happened. Sometimes nothing and sometimes it did. But... Time and space is sort of what you need to give. And a commitment, right, to dare, to keep showing up, because there's part of you that could have thought, oh, God, there's no point. He didn't do it last month, nor the month before, nor the month before. There's something about committing, like, I'm going to keep on going. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the great things you learn as a therapist is patience. You just keep on going. You know, if they're not ready this week, well, maybe they might be next week or in six months time or whenever. Everything comes at the time it needs to come. I just think something about the 21st century that we are so impatient. We want results immediately. And because of iPhones and all of the speed of life, that we've somehow lost that capacity to slow down and be patient and wait and endure and try again and get up and fall over. And one of the advantages of moving to Berlin was that when I came, I was staying there for two or three days. So, you know, there was time. It wasn't a flying visit to, you know, clean the house, change the light bulbs and leave. You know, I was there and, you know, we, we would eat meals together and we would talk and... And have proper time. You know, just flying in or flying out, you don't have time to go into it, allow him to be who he is, connect, step out, that sort of dance, like in relationships. You need time, don't you? You can't just do that in a couple of hours. Yeah, I mean, I think our desire is that uh, we're going to have this encounter and... Stubborn old men don't work like that. They work on their own time level. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes things come forward and sometimes they don't. And it sort of, in the bigger scheme of things, it doesn't matter. 
But I've also done a couple of things that are entirely different from the sort of things you might expect. So I, about two weeks ago, participated in a, a ritual burial. Have you ever heard of a ritual burial workshop? No, no, never heard of it. So um, there are about 50 of us in this uh, workshop and uh, we were put into tribes and within that tribe, there were about five people and one person had to decide to be the elder and the elder was going to die and we were going to ritually bury this person. Wow. And there was somebody who volunteered very quickly, so I didn't really have the chance to think, did I want to be a body or did I want to be a mourner? And we were given an active imagination. There was a soundscape and there was a script and we woke up in our cave. This was back in the time when people lived in, in caves and lived in tribes. And we had to take off the clothes of the person who died. And we then, there was warm water provided and little sponges and we washed the body. And then we were given some precious oils and we then with our hands rubbed the precious oil into the body. I mean, it was incredibly powerful because in the imagination, this really did feel like a, a dead body. And with my father, it was COVID time, so I couldn't be there. I'm so sorry. When my partner died 30 years ago, I mean, literally within about 10 seconds of it happening, I was running away from that room. So I'd never really done this. We've sort of moved this over into professionals who do these kind of things. Families washing and anointing the body mm. and then they were lying on a cloth and so we turned that into a shroud and then we had to carry this body to the ancestral burial ground which was in this case a group of a whole set of mattresses in the corner mm. and then do sort of death rituals. And what I discovered in this, that just before we effectively moved off to carry the body, I mean, this the person who decided to be the, uh, the dead body was the biggest person in the group. Being German was something like six foot six, and that uh, we had to get extra help to carry. Big old body. Big old body. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But before we started to try and carry it, I kissed the elder on the forehead and I sort of, as I did it, I knew that that's what I wanted to have done to my father at the end, but obviously couldn't. And this gave me a chance to process that and actually to do it in a different kind of way. And I mean, it was an immensely powerful workshop in lots and lots of other ways as well. And that's one of the great advantages. Yeah. Sounds so moving, Andrew, that it's never too late, that even though you couldn't have these rituals, which are so vital and so important in our grieving process, and often, I think, get kind of undervalued, but that you could go back and do it in a group of other people and in some way have a curative experience that repaired some of the absence of, of not being with your dad when he died and not having a proper funeral. And that's true of hundreds of thousands of people. So it sounds incredibly moving and brave of you to do it. 
Well, I was at a festival where there were lots and lots of different options and, you know, I could have done other workshops at that moment. But once again, when I heard about this workshop, there was this strong feeling inside and I thought, that normally means I need to go to this workshop. So you listen to your body. Do you let your body's instinct influence you? Yes. You know, I I thought there's something pulling me to this workshop, so off I go, although it's going to be difficult. I mean, there were people who were sobbing their eyes out in different parts of the room at the same time as as this. I mean, it was a very, very strong experience. But, you know, I moved to Berlin to have strong experiences like that. And that's the wonderful thing about Berlin. You know, if you want a workshop on ritual burial, you'll probably find one. And will you tell us the link so I can put it on the show notes so if people do want to do something like that, they could find it? It was literally just created by somebody on that day that oh, was right, the first right. time it was ever done that's mm. the sort of creativity in the in the group that uh, i belong to that throws up these kind of options so a sense of belonging is your tribe isn't it it's a sense of safety and belonging like these are my people exactly Yes. You know, you're not alone because the the tribe is watching. The tribe has got your back, so to speak. Yeah. And the symbol of a tribe, like a pack, for me is the wolf. So what I decided to do, and uh, I'm about halfway through it at the moment, was to get a wolf head tattooed across my chest. My goodness. That is surprising. Yep. Are you going to show me on the video? Um, I can. It, Come on. I will show you on the video. It's only the outline. Tomorrow I go for the colouring oh. in. But, I mean, <gasps> it is That it is, is a huge. proper, proper wolf tattoo. Yeah. Was it agony? Oh, it was complete and utter agony. I'll tell you uh, about it in a second. OK. But it, it's literally, the ears are just under my collarbone. The uh, mouth and cheeks are just round by my nipples. And he actually goes down below the sternum. So we are talking a big tattoo. You really are. I've never had a tattoo before. So, I mean, I went in sort of, I didn't go in the shallow end, shall we put it like that. I mean, it was incredibly painful. No, you jumped in. So tell me the psychological meaning of this. Because the people often have tattoos, but in memory of someone, they have a little heart or a teardrop. or. But you've gone full on wolf all over your chest. Yeah. So every morning when I look in the mirror, I cannot forget wolf, that I am not alone. You know, that oh. is the, the symbol. So you have a pack. You have others. I am not alone. Yeah. It's also about facing my fears as well, because my childhood fears were all about wolves. So I used to have nightmares all the time about wolves. So it's also quite a powerful thing to do. You know, I was afraid of wolves and now I have a wolf across my chest. It's the first time that I've actually walked towards pain. We spend our whole lives, you know, basically navigating away from pain. We don't actually consciously do this, but unconsciously we choose which is going to be the least painful option and we go for that. Whereas, you know, I actually walked towards this pain. I was on that tattoo bench for about three and a half hours worth of tattooing you know I didn't run away from pain I sort of embraced it you know I accepted the pain that was the word that came to mind is that 
by embracing and daring to walk towards the pain rather than being that frightened boy that had nightmares. I can see that poor child terrified on the bed. You in somehow like, opened your chest, like your heart, to fully experience who you are. And in discovering that you can do that, as painful as it was, is in some way, is, it, is the word strengthening, embracing pain? What's the outcome? Well, I think you are a little less afraid of pain and, you know, adversity and loss and everything else like that. It is a symbolic ritual that you go through. And, you know, I sort of saw it a little bit like a, a ritual. And when I go back and do the second session, which is the shading and the colouring in, which is another four hours on the oh table, goodness. I'm told it's not as painful. The outline is worse than the actual filling in that I will sort of consciously think of it much more as a as a ritual and sort of take along a picture of my father with me so that, you know, I'm thinking about this as something where, you know, I'm not running away from the pain. And I think when it comes to the pain of bereavement, that is our tendency. We tend to run away from it. Yeah. I mean, the psychological components that you're talking about are so... Interesting in the sense that, you know, taking the picture of your father with you, that your relationship with him continues. And, you know, how I talk about it and many people talk about it as therapists, it's by allowing ourselves to feel the pain that we heal. But also it feels like you're doing one step further than that. It's not just allowing yourself to feel the pain, but daring to push yourself in the way of pain. And in doing that, embracing it, you strengthen yourself, but also by using the image of a wolf and a pack, you feel connected both to your father, but also to your tribe. And not being so alone allows you to endure and live each day, I guess, with less, is it less pain or less fear? Less fear, I think. And actually, in the tattoo parlour, there are other people going through this experience too who are being tattooed, and there's a sense of being comrades in this. What I'm understanding with you, and I, I'd love to link this as well, if it's possible, to being a marital therapist and focusing for decades and writing over 20 books on relationships, is that you have used your own painful experience experiences as a source to influence and shape you in the choices of what you do in your life because you've wanted is it to make sense of them or in some way wanting to overcome them I mean what I'm imagining is that you didn't have a very full loving relationship with your parents and what you saw in them as a couple was that they functioned fine but your mum was in charge and somehow you've taken that and you've made it your life's work. Is that too big a stretch? Put me straight. My life's work, I suppose, is education rather than therapy. Strangely enough, you know, my mother was a teacher. My aunt was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. And in a sense, you know, here I am and I'm still going at it. So I think there's that element yes. to it. Transgenerational, like I talked about. 
the patterns in your family yeah. is to teach. And so do you teach your clients? Is that your model? I mean, more that you teach them? Because your books are things like, you know, the 20 questions to ask yourself if you're not in love or seven tips to fall in love again. Yeah. Seven steps to falling in love again. Yes. Yeah. There is an element of that. You know, I can show up in a variety of different ways you want me. I can be a parent. I can offer you love. Some clients want love, some don't. Yeah. So, you know, I can be your companion to fall down the well and go deep into your unconscious or, you know, I can teach you techniques so I can show up in a variety of different ways. But what's your underlying motivation within you? You know, I think all of us as therapists are meeting our own unmet needs as therapists in some ways to be in relationship to. Yeah, I'm dealing with, you know, the central message from my family is don't talk about feelings. You know, yes. I've. I write about them, I talk on a podcast with them, and I spend many hours in th talking to people about their feelings. So um, I don't know if you know the therapist Terry Real. Yes, um, uh, a great therapist. Um, and he says that therapists are people who are so much in need of therapy, they have to be in therapy all the time as professionals. <laughs> I think that is true. I mean, I, that was definitely true of me, is wanting to be... For me, it's about wanting to have depth of connection and relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so I think all of us come with it with our own particular absences that we had. And yours deficit was not being able to talk about feelings. Mine was I didn't feel I had a depth of connection. And I think that every family needs somebody who is actually going to speak out. And actually, you know, as a child, it got me into trouble. <laughs> You know, that uh, I became the difficult one. Uh, tricky Andrew. Uh, oversensitive Andrew, I think would be a better way of putting it. Oh, oversensitive. Oh, that's such an annoying one. I had that too. So it's actually taking that and realising, you know, this is unconscious work. You know, the shadow side of being oversensitive is actually being able to feel things deeply and use them in a way that's going to be useful for the family, the tribe, the greater good of our community. So it's sort of, to have a, a famous old saying, it's turning your lemons into lemonade. Yes, I was exactly thinking it's turning lead to gold, that you, right. you yeah. absolutely have, I guess in some ways, is it healed yourself or grown yourself or embraced the complexity and difficulty that you had? I would like to think that I'm actually being present on the journey, that that's what it is, is, you know, actually being truly there on the journey. So if the journey is bereavement, well, let's let's do bereavement. Let's not just whistle in the dark. Let's look at it. Let's understand it. Let's learn from it and hopefully grow. Nice. So I'd love to know, you know, in all the kind of decades of being in relationships that have obviously been rooted from your childhood, what do you think the core messages have been that enable relationships to thrive? I guess you and I come from the same places that relationship is the centre of our lives and love is what matters and love is how we can live a meaningful life and, you know, love is, is at the centre of it. What are the things that you've learned for yourself personally, which I guess you use professionally, 
about being in a relationship that now you've done this for so long that rises to the top as I ask you the question? I am a therapist after all. Gosh, you don't half, half ask some deep questions. Um, so what, what rises up to the top? I, I think it's back to that, that you have to deal with what is there. Mm. That actually the minute you start saying we're not going to deal with what is there, it is terribly frightening. When you actually look behind the door, so to speak, it's nowhere near as frightening. I mean, that how I got my fear of wolves is we went to a, a strange house when I was a small child and there was something dark behind the door. Well, it in my imagination, it was a wolf. Um, in reality, it was a winter dressing gown that was hanging on the back of the door. So fascinating how that's lived in you for decades, isn't it? Yeah, and that generally our fears are not wolves. They're much more winter dressing gowns um you know you're not going to be savage to death by a winter dressing gown in fact actually it might be quite useful to keep you warm and so often our fears are not as bad as we think and sometimes those things you know the the shadow side of it or the golden shadow in this case is that it's going to look after you and protect you possibly the wolf can protect you and look out for you but certainly the winter dressing gown is going to be blooming useful isn't it yeah so in our couple relationships or as parental relationships or our friendships, when we actually talk about and face what is happening in this moment, rather than get busy and avoid it, that is... That's where the gold is. That's where the gold is. I suppose I'm interested in helping people find the gold and... Generally, the way to find the gold is to go into the dragon's den, so to speak, because <laughs> the dragons and the witches and have the gold, um, and yet we flee from there. And you, with your dad dying, which is what you brought as the challenge that you're facing, and you've told us what it was particularly about that that's so difficult. And I guess what you've told us that really helps you is that you have faced that loss. Your father's death brought multiple losses, which often deaths do, but you haven't kind of shut down and moved away from it in many ways through the ritual, through writing, through analysis, through talking on your podcast to people about death. You use many roots into yourself of both creative and learning. I mean, like being an educator, you're also a learner, so you're constantly wanting to inform yourself so you can educate. And so I guess with your dad, this is an ongoing process. You don't get to an end where you go, ha, I'm done with dad. And I'm never going to be done with death, sadly, because no. people keep dying. And, you know, one day it's going to be me in the bed around. And um, we can't run away from this topic, although our society sort of does its level best to do so and possibly is one of the reasons why there is so much non-technical term sickness. Yeah. I really believe that we need to be talking about sex and birth and death and dying <laughs> in equal measure. And that, you know, I think we talk very badly about sex, you know, often inaccurately and use it to kind of sell things or, um, but not in a meaningful way. And we're frightened of talking about death. I think, I think it is changing. People like you help change it. And you help change it too. I hope so. 
But I think that book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, like facing our fears, our own death, the death of people we love, is how we support ourselves not to have regrets, how we support ourselves to stay sane, maybe, that what we do to block the pain and fear of them is the thing that does us harm over time, sometimes through generations. Yes, and a desire to sort of process, you know, some of the generational stuff. You know, my great-grandfather, when his son died at the Somme and the telegram arrived, Mm. he went upstairs and came down two weeks later saying, we will never talk about my son again or our son again. (gasps) And that not talking has been passed all the way down to you know who and I oh, I refuse to goodness. sign the pact you know I'm the one that stands up and speaks and it's it's necessary because you know I would go mad if I didn't speak my goodness that's such a an amazing place to end that your great grandfather shut his room when his son was killed on the Somme two weeks later came down and said we shall never speak of this again And you, as his great-grandson, are changing the family script. You didn't sign that pact. You're now saying, I am going to speak about death and dying and loss and feelings and myself. Which doesn't necessarily make me very popular with the rest of the family, but there you are. No. I mean, another whole conversation for another podcast would be the siblings and how you all managed your dad's death but unfortunately we don't have time for that now and I think that a veil is probably best dropped over that topic as well anyway because um, everybody deals with death differently and each journey is just as valid what a lovely way to end everybody deals with life and death differently and their own way of processing it is valid thank you very much Andrew G Marshall it's been my pleasure One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, Sophie and Emily. Interested to talk about Andrew G. Marshall as a therapist. So it's like three therapists having listened to a therapist podcast and a therapist who's parents have died, whose father has died, and how he was so honest about the complexity of his relationship, but the sort of power of that relationship that that your father represents as a protector, as the kind of person between you and death, I thought was really interesting. Yes, really interesting. And um, also the bit about ritual, like this incredible sounding ritual he did, because he wasn't able to be there with his father when he died because of COVID. And it made me wonder, like you, mum and Soph, I mean, do you have any kind of suggestions of maybe more um, sort of manageable rituals that 
that people can do when somebody dies if either either if they are able to be with them or not like what rituals would you suggest i mean i i think i may have said this before but i i i think we underestimate the absolute crucial importance of rituals to mark transitions in our life and obviously around death it's incredibly important and for thousands of years we've developed rituals you know normally around stones that both mark the death of someone, our own mortality, and find a way of coming together to connect in order to do that. And I think, you know, as Suzanne's episode showed, that um, for those who haven't listened, Suzanne had a, uh, her mum died by COVID, and she again couldn't have the ritual of a funeral. And so I, I, I've talked to a lot of different clients of creating their own ritual and kind of collaborate with them about what what would be significant in relation to the person that's died? Would it be planting a tree and marking it with stones? Would it be writing a poem and standing in a circle and saying something? Would it be lighting a candle? Um, I think sometimes getting something made and putting it somewhere in your house that's significant or making it yourself can be an important ritual. We have a, my mother-in-law who recently died, um, loved frogs. And <laughs> one of the first things I did after she died was bought a candlestick, a frog candlestick <laughs> that sits on our kitchen table. And so whenever we light candles, whether we're just having dinner, but also we tend to do Shabbat on a Friday and we light our momo candle and we light those candles. And it's a very like integrated little mini ritual, I guess, that sort of says, hello, you're here, <laughs> we're in your yeah. presence. When my father was staying with us, we get him to light it. Um, that's so touching. That's something we've done that we've enjoyed. I was also thinking about ritual as supportive of transition in lots of different areas of life. You know, we, we have some traditions around death. Uh, we not always pay attention to them, but we do have, you know, funerals and churches and spaces that we go to. And, and, and But we have lots of transitions in life that we actually have lost ritual for um and i live in an area of somerset near Froome where people are very into ritual <laughs> there's a lot of reclamation <laughs> of ritual going on around here that's great um which is great and but it, and i've tried a few things been parts of groups and it's like oh there's a really part of me that risks feels deeply slightly embarrassed or uncomfortable um and also really love it like, what are you doing um i'm trying to think of an example so I was part of a yeah part of a women's group. It's a, it's a lovely group. Um, I don't I go to it really anymore. But I don't know if it was the solstice, everyone going out and gathering some plants and then coming back together and symbolizing it and ritualizing the change of the seasons and different days and different seasons having different symbolism. And part of me loves that and really is into it. Another part of me doesn't know how to do it because I haven't done it all my life. It's not a natural. Um, go to no and actually when you said rituals for different things my sort of go-to <laughs> when you said like transitions I wasn't thinking like seasons and wet the year I was thinking oh you mean like when you move house <laughs> or like when you get divorced <laughs> well I remember you said you said the divorce one because I might you know Grace and Perry he did rites of passage I think it's called yeah it's a great program I and there was one it. on divorce where he created a ceremony for them and they made it he made a big tapestry about their life and in the ceremony, they cut it in half. And then at the end of the ceremony, all the people who were there and witnessed helped sew it back together again. So it was a new 
thing. Beautiful. And it was it was really it was really beautiful. And also things like I had some friends around here who've helped when their when their daughters um start having their periods, doing a uh, ritual with them around that. Um, which is another transition into sort of not only I feel like that's important not only potentially for all the reasons that ritual can help with transition, but also to de-shame things that historically maybe have been considered shameful. Dirty or and something. That, you know, women's mm. bodies. And uh, by making it a celebration, you're really countering a narrative and, and allowing a conversation. So I think there's lots of powerful ways that we can bring and learn to bring without kind of um, stealing traditions from other countries and other traditions that we can create our own. Yeah. I love that. And I love the creativity and letting our imagination kind of flow. The other thing, uh, I mean, there was so much in this conversation, but the other thing was this huge wolf tattoo on his chest. <laughs> that really made me laugh. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> Nor was I. I love it when I'm so surprised. It's yeah. like, I'm rather funny. envious that you got to see it. You know, the most unexpected people do unexpected things. And I love that we can all be surprised by someone else and that we make these assumptions. And then it's like, whoa, that's extraordinary. Yes, I mean, that's a very um, tangible way of facing facing your fears. Walking Um, towards pain. Walking towards pain. But also I really appreciated what he said around the qualities that we have as as people all have sort of shadow and light and so like are the qualities that we think of in ourselves as weakness are often also our real great strengths so like for me for example I'm definitely in the sensitive area but also I am really really decisive and in some ways that's great because I make decisions really quickly but also it can mean that I'm kind of impulsive and that I've made decisions that I didn't really want and like my husband is a bit more laid back than me which gives me the bonus of like leaving me to be in charge but on the flip side I sometimes get really annoyed that he doesn't like take more charge which is really unfair because I sort of like to be the organizer but I think the more that as people we can frame the way that we are as not like good qualities and bad qualities, but actually things that make us human. And there is sort of darkness and light in all aspects of ourselves. I love that. Yes. And if you can also, you know, like, like you were talking about with your partner or, you know, my husband, there've been times where trying to do that also about them, where I realise the things that most <laughs> yes. annoy me about them are also the, some, the, sometimes the thing that I need to call on to help me because it's the thing I find hard or the thing that I'm not good at. So, totally. you know, Jake is highly organised and um, sometimes that's really annoying. Yeah. But it's also like, I could also be really grateful for that because he fills a gap <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, that I wouldn't do. And so sometimes, you know, seeing it in others as well as in ourselves, I think can help relationships where you can recognise their strength. Oh, definitely. That, yeah, I mean, that's can, sort of what I was trying to say about yes. like the laid back which is exactly really nice because it means that like I am more decisive and have really clear ideas about like what I think we should do and he's sort of like okay yeah. as long as I can play golf and, and the, the, the psychological kind of aspect of that of projective identification that often what we project onto another person is actually mm. that Jungian idea of what we most hate about them is what mm. we most hate about ourselves, that it's in us and we unconsciously don't want to face it and they're forcing us to. 
Yeah. Mm. Yes. I mean, and that was the other thing that I really appreciated about your um, interview with Andrew was the sort of analyst talk and the importance of the unconscious, thinking about how we might be replaying the unconscious in everyday life or thinking about our dreams and what they might mean. And I just I think that so much of mental health now is focused on behavioral interventions and focused on mindfulness and meditation and all these things that are fantastic and be incredibly helpful. But I think there is something to be said about looking deeper and thinking about different ways that we might be able to explore ourselves and who we are and the roles that we are playing in our lives. And so it was sort of nice to have a kind of reminder of that in his conversation I had uh I was working with a therapist and I remember I'd never worked with dreams before and I still haven't done it much myself but when we were having a conversation about dreams I think I'd brought a dream and he was explaining that for him he doesn't necessarily see waking life as any more of life than sleep than dreaming life cool. and 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 I'm and I was like Oh yeah, it's kind of an interesting. Um, I don't know what I actually think, but it was a real like wake up moment of like, well, that is my life too. Mm-hmm. When yes. I'm dreaming, that's still me having experience. That, that is your brain, your that's body, part of your... my life. <laughs> dreaming is part of my life. Mm. Um, and why is it that my waking life is somehow an overvalued, and that my dreaming life is somehow not real or not really a thing? Mm. And um, it was just one of those kind of when someone says something that's so. Uh, across your understanding that makes you wake up to something um yeah I just think there are so many wonderful ways of working therapeutically I had a gestalt therapist once and I brought a dream to her and it was about being in a jungle and there was like this path in the jungle and I was like walking along the path and then this sounds very sort of wishy-washy but it was honestly very powerful and um she sort of got me to be different parts in the dream in a very gestalty kind of way and It was like I had this realization that I wasn't just the path. I wasn't this like narrow thing, but I was also the jungle. (laughs) But I had all these other parts that wasn't just this like sort of narrow, like non-complex existence. And, you know, Mm. I think if you're open to it and it's your thing, it is not everybody's thing. It can be really powerful. And And I think creativity to reform and reshape things. Exactly. The creativity to reform and reshape things. And I think, What I'm finding powerful about you two saying this is that when we call on all of ourselves, like our unconscious, our dream life, we have more resources and more kind of robustness. Because if we're only calling on our kind of left brain, our kind of get stuff done, you know, but if we think of ourselves as many systems, some we're more aware of than others, we have a lot of insight and wisdom and unconscious knowledge that we and can... richness i think we are all richness. really rich individuals we're, we're not all just the part <laughs> yes and the, the you know the wolf symbol i was thinking it's a touch you know things like that that are touchstones to, to maybe parts of yourself that are, are not, that you want to hold on to but they can hold a lot of complexity that's part of creativity isn't it is that an image or a poem or a symbol or an object can hold many many layers at once in a way that sometimes it's harder to do into talking. So maybe a a place to end would be inviting our listeners to go internally and find a symbol that has rich significance for them and how they may 
are kind of allowed as part of their lives, whether they wear it or have it on a table or draw it or mark it, that that might be something that they could do for themselves. The lovely idea. So thank you, Emily and Sophie. And thank you for everyone that is listening. And if this is a recording that you think would be useful or insightful for a friend, do share it. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Let us know what you think of them. Maybe rate and review them and give us some kind of insight and notes of what you like and what you don't like. And do subscribe to it. And until next week, thank you very much. Bye.